0: all right ladies and gentlemen um thanks for coming out thanks for finding me even though I lied to you about the date haha so it was not on Thursday as you discovered but from now on it will be the third Thursday of every month so third Thursday of every month so they they changed the date on me because uh this room was booked for another project well it's double booked and so they moved me so anyway I apologize for that but thanks for finding out, and, and coming this evening. But again, it'll be third Thursday of every month, and next month will be Schopenhauer. So, very exciting. Um, but tonight, Hegel. Now, Hegel, wow, Hegel. Um, the question to think, I would ask you to think in, in historical context with Hegel, is why did Napoleon crown himself emperor? This is, this is, it seems like we think about it, we go, oh, of course he did, because that's what you do with power, you take over, you make yourself first citizen, and then you make yourself emperor. Well, um, I think if we think about Hegel and the Hegelian ideas, you'll see that it's much more complex than that, and that really Napoleon did it because he's not Hegel. Hegel wouldn't have fallen for that, and it ended up being a, a, a big mistake on Napoleon's part for many reasons. But to get a sense of Hegel and Hegel's ideas, we have to figure out, sort of, Hegel's life is very important, and Kant, Kant's life was not that important because he basically sat in a room and did philosophy. But Hegel lived at a particular time and place, being uh, Germany, although Germany, I say Germany, it's not Germany at this point, this is, this is the key. He's born here in 1770 in Stuttgart, and Stuttgart is sort of a free city, in the middle of Württemberg, which is sort of a state, if you want to call it that, a district, that's ruled by a duke. Um, And the duke ruled other territories as well. And this was all negotiated through the Holy Roman Empire. So this is what's weird for us to try to get our minds around. If you were raised as a citizen of Stuttgart, you had different legal rights and obligations and opportunities than if you were born and raised outside of the city of Stuttgart. Or if you were born in the neighboring duchy. So the religion in your principality was determined by the religion of the duke or count or whomever was controlling your region, unless you were in one of these free cities in which sometimes they had a different religion altogether. But basically everybody had to follow along with whatever the rules were. But the rules varied dramatically just from location to location, in the city, out of the city, next dukedom over. And this was constantly being negotiated through the Holy Roman Empire. And so it was this bizarre collection of centuries of accumulated contracts and legal structures and obligations and who pays taxes and who doesn't pay taxes and which religion do you belong to and which families count and which families don't count and it just it, to us is like unimaginable how, how complex this was but this is what everybody lived with your power, your identity your obligations, your legal structures grew out of were you born noble or not he was not born as a noble family were you born in a free city or not if you were you have totally different Uh, way of life than people who weren't. Uh, Are you under the jurisdictions of Catholic or Protestant uh, religious leaders? Some people were, some people weren't, some people were relatively free of them. And So you have this weird system where everybody's identity is determined by your place in society, which is basically where you were born. Um, So all these gradations from nobles all the way down to peasants, who again, peasants at this point, you're born in the countryside, you have essentially no rights, certainly don't have the rights of someone born in a city. Um, so he's, he's raised in this, he's, he's in a family of just distinguished middle-class people, not like, they had what they called the non-noble notables. Mm-hmm. So the nobles didn't tend to run cities, they tended to be run by sort of business people and hereditary hierarchies. Um, and so the countryside generally run by the nobles. The cities generally run by people that were, they called, again, non-no, non-noble notables. These were the families. So some of these cities had elections, but it just so happened that they always elected the same families to the same offices for generations. It was coincidence, right? And so, you know, that, that your place in society was determined that way. Um, but as you can see, uh, 1789 is the French Revolution, so he's born in 1770, he gets an excellent education at every level. His mother was highly educated, particularly for a woman of, of her uh, generation, of that period. Uh, taught him Latin, which suggests that he knew, she knew Latin. So she was highly educated, it's not clear historically why. But so he got an excellent education at home from his mom, and then he went to the best, essentially the best schools you could go to. And then he goes off to the Tubingen Semita- Seminary, which is to say, where if you wanted to be educated, this is where you went. You went to seminary. So they had these universities, they called them, but they were basically theological institutions with the occasional teaching of a mathematics class or something. Um, and in this case, Protestant. So it was a Protestant university uh, run by the theological seminary almost completely. And when you went there, this is what's hard for us to imagine again, he had to sign a contract that said if he didn't become ordained, if he failed or something went wrong, his father would be on the hook to reimburse the college for its costs. Also, when he graduated, he would be placed in a job. He would be placed as a minister to wherever they wanted to assign him. He was contractually obligated to do that. And so, you know, it, it was very, again, highly structured, but as you can see French Revolution coming, the Enlightenment ideals are in the air. Human liberty, human freedom, equality, fraternity. The stir is starting up. And Hegel was in tune with this from day one. Very interested in Enlightenment ideals. Very interested in, in uh, revolutionary politics. All of these movements are starting to come into the German principalities. The, you know, just sort of social, political, communal unrest And so, bizarrely, this young Hegel finds himself in a repressive, medieval, Protestant seminary. He has no particular interest in religion. In fact, he's very much more interested in revolutionary politics and the Enlightenment. And yet, what does he have to study for? The seminary, because that's what you study for. And not studying for it would be, uh, he had financial obligations on on his father. And so it's this weird tension and mix. Uh, and famously, when he shows up there, he makes two friends, Holderlin and Schelling, which if you're going to be a 19th century German and you just happen to run into two pals to roommate with in college, Holderlin and Schelling are a good choice. Two of the most important intellectuals of their generation, well, three, of course, because it was also Hegel, just happened to run into each other there and like, wow, this is great. We're having a big time. Life is fun. Everything is going on. Uh, so he, he does okay there. He, he, he was incarcerated for a while. By the way, they actually had a, 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 a prison cell on campus. So if you broke the rules, they imprisoned you, you know? So I mean, it was, it's old, it was medieval, right? So this is, this is what's hard for us to imagine is that the institutions that he was occupying were medieval at, and then Reformation, right? Sort of Calvinist, Protestant, Lutheran, all these tensions. At the same time that you've got the revolution going on, so it's this bizarre mix of like, oh, liberty and fraternity. And if you come back late to your dorm room, we put you in a prison cell for three days with no food and water, right? And oh, by the way, you're contractually obligated to teach in any seminary position that we give you, uh, you know. So it's just these weird, like, interconnecting, mixing periods all going on. And so he, he graduates finally, and he does well, you know. He, he he, he pretended to be sick, it appears, so that he could skip out on a lot of this. Um, but now what do you do? So it turns out that there weren't a lot of seminary positions, which was fine as far as Hegel was concerned, because it meant he was unlikely to be placed in one. So he did what any educated person of his social status would do at this time, and that is become a private tutor for a wealthy family. But this is weird again. So... He goes from a seminary that he's not particularly interested in to being a tutor, which is basically a servant, in the house of a noble. Now, he's anti-nobles. He's also from sort of a middle, upper middle class family, and he finds himself suddenly being a servant in a noble house. So this is not a recipe for everybody getting along really well. And he struggled with this because he's like, why am I a servant just because this person is, is, is noble Vaughn? They have the Vaughn in their name, so they're noble, I'm a servant, and I have to serve them? Even though I'm from a middle-class background and I'm much better educated, they are by far, vastly better educated than they are. Um, and so the, the tensions, right, all, all the social fabric and the social tension, and again, at the same time, the French Revolution is going on. And so the model, that it does not have to be this way, this is the key, is, is awakened in his mind, has been, it has been fermenting there. And then the revolution happens, and all over Germany, radicals and, and thinkers get excited. It's like, oh, we can throw off the burden, we can throw off the yoke. We can be equal, we can be free, we can be liberated. Ah, Problem. Well, then who are we? So the, it, it, the tension there is, and, and nobody I mean, this is the struggle that basically continues to today. Hegel is a significant thinker because he's one of the first thinkers who had to wrestle with this fundamental question of identity. If your identity is not that you're a noble person, because we're getting rid of the nobility, originally in the French Revolution, get rid of all the nobles, then, where do you get your identity from? Many, many of the wealthy bourgeoisie, as we would call them, were striving to be ennobled. This was the goal. So they knew what they were working for. It was to become ennobled, and then they would know who they were. Or if, like Kant's family, you were a member, not Kant, Hegel's family, you were a member of, of a city, a free city, then you took your identity from being. A member of a free city, you know. You, I'm a astute guardian. I'm a, I'm a person who has the legal obligations and standing and protections of my free city. And there's like the variation of this was just unimaginable, but just sort of as a general principle, like you know, sort of freeish city. Well, we're going to get rid of those, right? There's no special classifications anymore. Um, Another classic example is when he was a student. Generally speaking, the students were not subject to the laws of the places where the universities were, because they were from all other places, and which meant that if the students committed a crime, the cities couldn't do anything about it. And so the famous, you know, the, the German students were famous for rioting and dueling and drinking and fighting, and they'd kill people, and they'd run back to the university and barricade themselves, and the town officials couldn't come in, and, you know, so the, this whole notion of town and gown, I mean, they really took it, like, like, with swords and fire and, you know, brimstone, I mean, they were going at it. But as a student, you were untouchable by the city officials. But you were subject to the university authorities. So a rule like turning a library book in might be a lot worse than like beating up somebody in town because those people can't do anything about that, but the, the, the university could get you in trouble, right? So these just strange interweavings. So there's Hegel trying to think about this. He's like, okay, everything is changing. French Revolution, nobles are on, you know, are failing. They're losing, this seems to be liberating, more free thought, more opportunity to explore ideas. But then, of course, the French Revolution turns into the terror and the elements of reaction within Germany are like, right, this is what we warned you about. You throw away all the shackles of control and authority and what do you get? Blood in the streets, people being beheaded, chaos, terror. You don't want that. You want to look back and reimpose the order that was. But then, of course, other factions are like, hey, we felt great when we got rid of the nobles. And then during the Napoleonic years, but, you know, French Revolution and the Napoleonic years were 25 years, 20 years of, of, of unrest. You know, uh, treaties, new controllers, new districts being drawn, new government f- structures. The nobles are out, the nobles are back in. A different noble is in charge. piece of Vienna. You know, just, oh, just change, 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 change. Uh, and, And Hegel is sitting in the middle of this and he's really trying to come to grips with it, but not in a simplistic way. One of the important things about Hegel, his prose is very turgid, very thick and difficult. But what he was trying to do is not go, oh, the French Revolution is the greatest thing that's ever happened, it's perfect, just whatever they do is good. And he wasn't saying everything about German history is bad. He was continually focused on people are like, how do we create a structure in the world where people can actually have meaning and values without it being imposed by a king or a pope or uh, a duke or a city charter? He just said, that, that is ridiculous. You are not a city charter. You are not, this, uh, if you're a duke, that's a stupid way to think of yourself. If you're not a duke, it's, you shouldn't think of yourself as less than a duke. And so he comes up with a whole series of ideas. Let me look at some quotes here. Oh, let me keep going here just through the timeline. So then in 1804, uh, Napoleon declares himself emperor. Now, now this is key because for many of the people that have been really pro-French Revolution, they thought, oh, great. He overthrows the old system. He gets everything going. We get democracy. We get representative government. And then what does he do? Crowns himself emperor. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, and they're really frustrated. This didn't bother Hegel too much because he wasn't as shocked by it as other people were, because he hadn't, he wasn't totally bought into it. Like, oh, this is going to be perfect. It's going to be utopia. He's like, no, this is going to be problematic and complex, and who knows. But as part of me, the reason Napoleon did this, it's because okay, peace is sort of settled, he's won. Now, how do you maintain it? And in Napoleon's mind, the best way to maintain it was to try to negotiate with and meet the forms of the existing political structure. This is not crazy. They'll only respect me if I'm noble. Well, I'll be the emperor, the top noble. I'll found a dynasty. I'll marry into the ruling families. And then what we've achieved with the French Revolution will be saved. It will be secure... And we'll be able to put it into place. And we can have some peace that's sustainable here. Yay. But this is because he was looking back to the old methods of creating value and identity and power structure. And this is why Hegel is such a great figure, because same time, but Hegel was not looking back. He's looking forward. He's the first real modernist thinker Because he grew up in this period, he grew up with all of the power structures, and he went, you know, no, there's got to be a better way. And so the problems that we think about and struggle with, Hegel is pretty much one of the first people to really sit down and think about them and struggle with them in the way that we do. He didn't look back. He didn't say, oh, the past is where you go to do it. He says, no, you can't do that anymore. So a couple of great quotes If you look at the last one, it is is maybe the best one. He says, in this way, the idea is elevated to spirit. We'll talk about this whole spirit thing because it's crucial. The principle of absolute being for itself or of freedom, wherein the determination is precisely this, that as such, man has an infinite worth. So rule number one for Hegel, and by the way, this is really newish on the scene, the sort of Kant's idea run mad, that every individual has infinite worth. Nobody is more valuable than anybody else. Every individual. So This is new in the world. Because remember the old system that he grew up in, everybody is structured by their place. Where you're born, who you're related to, who you're married to, who your ancestors are, What city you're in, what obligations you have, what rights do you have? And everybody was different. What structures, you know, was hugely, vastly, unimaginably complex and variable. Hegel's like, no, you can't do that. No, no, no. Everybody, everybody is of infinite worth, at least theoretically. Or potentially. Um... And he says this because his theory of philosophy and of history, as we'll talk about, is he says this, With self-consciousness, then, we have now passed into the native land of truth, into the kingdom where it is at home. We have to see how the form or attitude of self-consciousness in the first instance appears. When we consider this new form and type of knowledge, the knowledge of self in relation to that which preceded it, namely the knowledge of another... We find indeed that this latter has vanished, but that its moment have at the same time been preserved. And the loss consists in this, that those moments are here present as they are implicit as they are in themselves. By the way, he goes on and on like this. It's really hard to read Hegel, but we'll talk about it. The, The being which the meaning dealt with, particularly in the universality of perception opposed to it, as also the empty inner region of understanding... They are no longer present as substantial elements, but as moments of self-consciousness, i.e. as abstractions or difference, which are at the same time of no account for consciousness itself, or not different at all, and are purely vanishing entities. Right. What the hell is that supposed to mean? One, this is why it's hard to read Hegel. Uh, he did this on purpose, by the way. His earliest writings are really clear. And then when he thought, no, I want to be a thinker who's taken seriously and work at the university, he decided I had to write like Kant. Seriously, I mean, and he changed his style to this. This is one reason you want to go back and punch Kant. Uh, you know, But it's just like, wow. Uh, so, but what he's saying here is thought. What sets human beings apart? Thought. And what's the purest form of thought? It's thinking about ourselves. Self-consciousness, self-awareness, self-introspection. This is the most human thing. To possess your own mind and to be able to reason with it makes you a sovereign subject of the universe. By the way, we'll talk about this. Not just uh, It makes you an entity, essentially equivalent of God. Um, you, are, you become a being of importance, of infinite importance. That's why he says this. Self-awareness, self-consciousness, the capacity to reason and think about your own thoughts. Now, people now complain about this, oh, this infinite regress, right? You're thinking about your thoughts, you're thinking about thinking about your thoughts. But Hegel was fine with that. He's like, look, it, you, when you begin to think about how you think, Now, now you are a completely actualized person, because now you can control your thinking. Having thoughts good, controlling your thoughts, being able to reason, ah, that is great. Now we've begun. So much so that he's famous for his philosophy of history, and he has a history of philosophy, all of his titles are the same. History of philosophy, philosophy of history, a history of the philosophy of history, an introduction to the history of the philosophy of history. You're like, oh, please, just get some new words. Uh, but but if, the, the next quote here is from the finale of Spirit. He says, history is conscious, self-meditating process, spirit emptied out into time. But this externalization, this kenosis, is equally an externalization of itself. The negative is the negative itself. Thus absorbed in itself, it is sunk in the night of its self-consciousness. But in the night it vanished, our existence is preserved, and this transformed existence, the former one, but now reborn of the spirit's knowledge, is the new existence, a new world, and a new shape of spirit. What the hell does that mean? So, you become aware, you are the self-conscious individual. And for Kant, the working out of the individual's awareness is the working out of history. All that that matters in history to Kant, Kant, sorry, Hegel, all that matters to Hegel in history is the growing capacity of the individual to reason and to have the freedom to act upon and express that capacity. This is his core driver. So how then do you avoid this sort of isolated individuals who have no contact with anybody and everybody makes up their own universe, etc. Which is basically where Kant leaves you. Remember for last time from Kant, I mentioned this. Kant says, well, we really have no access to the actual world. So God might exist out there, but we would never know it. So that's fine. And most people are like, we're not that fine with that. Right? We really do want to have some contact with the outside world. Kant says, well, just reason, be, be fine with that. right?" No, most people weren't. Hegel certainly wasn't. What Hegel said is, what you're really doing when you're thinking, by the way, it's very platonic, this is a platonic idea, is you're connecting with the spirit of the universe. There is a universal spirit. And when you most fully begin to think and reflect and reason, you're tapping into an expression of the spirit of the universe which he keeps calling the spirit. Occasionally he'll call it God, but this seems mostly not to get in trouble with the religious authorities. He constantly struggled with this. We'll talk about it a little bit. But it, this, this is the idea that he, he clearly believed this. He thought there is universal reason. There is meaning in the universe. We'll call that spirit. I mean, it's the question of why does math work? Math works because there is some sort of logical system in the universe. Just call that spirit. Why does life exist? There is some order and structure in the universe. Let's call that spirit. This is sort of, he just says, let, you, know, you look around, you see it, you see order, you see structure, you see reason, you see logic, it seems to work. Life is around us. So, whatever is driving that, whatever structure, that is spirit. And what we're doing in history and what we're doing individually when we are free and when we are thinking is we're basically joining that. Because we're all aspects of it, and we're sort of joining it with our individual capacities. And so it's this kind of weird movie he makes, where he says, when you're being your most individual, most liberated, most free, most reasonable, most self-reflective, is when you're actually tapping into the universal spirit, because this is what the universal spirit does, it manifests itself through us, through the world. So that way there's both individuality plus structure. So it's, it's, it's sort of a strange argument, but it has this, well, a lot of people accuse him of being a pantheist, meaning this didn't seem very godlike. I mean, it seemed spirity, but not godlike. Um, and so again, the is that he struggled with his whole life. Um, and so he conceptualized, again, the last quote here, Uh, The history of philosophy begins where thought and freedom comes into existence, where it cuts itself loose from immersion and unity with nature, constitutes itself for itself, where thinking goes into itself and remains itself. From the historical point of view, the emergence of spirit is intimately connected with the flower of political liberty, and political liberty, liberty within the state, begins where the individual feels himself to be an individual. So you can't have individuals if you don't have liberty, and you can't have liberty if you don't have some structure to have liberty within, and you can't have liberty to think without all of that, so what history is, and the history of philosophy is tracking this, is the evolution of our capacity to express individual will within political structures that promote and support it, i.e. why he's so excited about the French Revolution. New opportunity for liberty, new opportunity for individual self-expression, but within a structure. And so one thing that Hegel returned to consistently and why he's... A lot of people say, like, this is sort of nihilism, says, oh, you know, get rid of everything. Or uh, people say they're libertarians. Well, we don't want government. Hegel's like, well, that's silly. This makes no sense because you need a structure in which to be free. That so you can't you, you you have to have some sort of polis, some sort of system you're a part of that allows you to express yourself. If you have no agreed bounds or rules or guidelines, then you're you, you just have chaos. You have no definition. That's the and he said this is this is that's anarchy, not freedom. Because, for instance, I mean the example I always like to use is language. Right? People say, oh, you know, make your own world. It's like, yeah, make your own language. Don't speak a language. Right? Language is really convenient because it allows us to communicate with other people. And not being able to communicate with other people is incredibly uh, not free. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go to a country where you don't speak the language. And even the simplest attempts at self-expression or getting things done become unbelievably difficult. It's not, that's not freedom. And so, but Hegel did not shy away from that, but it's a really difficult problem to solve. How do you give people structure without repressing them? How do you give people liberty but systems? How, you know. And, it, and it, it, Whether he worked it out or not, I, I, would, I would say probably not. But he recognizes this as the core problem and thought and worked about this incessantly, hundreds, thousands of pages trying to work this out. But notice, it's the same problem we have today. It's exactly what we're arguing about, debating, working on today. He said, you, you, you know, how do we structure a system that allows people to be free without imposing too much of a system on people that takes away their liberty? It's a really tricky problem. Yeah, and and he's often accused of being like an apologist for the Prussian state. He was absolutely not an apologist for the Prussian state. He would, ended up teaching at the University of Berlin, which is sort of the capital of the Prussian state and one of its leading gyms. And so there he is, and he was constantly in trouble because he was a famous philosopher by this time of his life, lots of notoriety which made him sort of a crown jewel, right? You want to have famous philosophers, it makes you look good and important. Then, now of course no one cares, but then it did. Uh, But everyone was suspicious that, hey, this universal liberty for individuals, this is not like what the Prussian state is promoting. But the beauty of his system is he wrote such dense, complicated material, he was always able to explain away this. So they would say, oh, so at one point in one of his lectures, he said something very derogatory about the Catholic Church. Now, this is Prussian state, but he said to him, so now this runs you afoul of the you know, laws against slandering religion. And so they wrote him a letter and you know, said, hey, you know, boy, you're in trouble. And so he got this beautiful letter about how, well, you know, I went to a Protestant seminary, I'm a believer in Luther, and it's not really my fault that the Catholic Church is so messed up. And, you know, and so it was, it was this beautiful sort of, as if he was the shining defender of Lutheranism, which of course the Prussians can't attack him on. Uh, but really, they were always right in their suspicions about him. And in fact, the second he died, the person they hired to replace him, Schelling actually, who he knew from his childhood, which is odd, uh, they said, what we want you to do is stomp out Hegelianism. Because they knew, they didn't know exactly why, but they knew it was really bad. But he was certainly not an apologist for the Prussian state by any stretch of the imagination. What he was trying to do was work out this core problem that he lived. This is the problem that Napoleon did not solve. Napoleon conquers, has territory, has land, has wealth. How do I maintain it? He looks to the past. Make myself an emperor, get a bunch of nobles, marry the noble families, because that's how things had always been done as far as he knew. That was his experience of the world. Hegel lived in the same world, but he said, yeah, that's done. The French Revolution and the ideals, more importantly, of the French Revolution, of the Enlightenment, of human liberty, are here, and they're not going away. We're not going to go back. We have to start trying to think about how to make this work, not about trying to go back. But this creates all kinds of interesting problems, again, that we still live with today. For one, and it's hard for us to imagine again because we live in Hegel's world. If you're an aristocracy or a king or a prince or a pharaoh or any of these, an emperor in China, you will believe in fixation. The world is frozen. It is the correct way. I mean, we might build a bridge. We might, do, might fight a war, but it doesn't change anything. The nobles will still be the nobles. The structure is going to still be the structure. This is so true that it wasn't until like the 16th century in Europe that they even started to keep dates right. So historians are always pissed off because like a, a victory will be given in battle will be given to like five successive kings. And they're like, well, that battle was not fought by five kings. It was fought by one of them in this 170-year period, but we don't know which because they kept—they said every king won the battle. And it turns out that they didn't care about history in the sense of progress or change. What was important is the king wins battles. Here's a famous battle, so our king won it. Even though it was fought someplace else 300 years ago, it doesn't matter. Kings fight battles. See, our whole notion of history as a sequence of events that lead to a sequence of No, that is not how it used to be written and not how it used to be recorded. What mattered was that the new king was the old king. The new pope was the old pope. just It's a different person. It's the position that mattered. And the position does not change. And so when Hegel starts talking about this progress of the spirit, the evolution of individual, what he does is he puts history in motion. He says, no, history is a dynamic, evolving, changing process. Ideas influence ideas. There's growth, there's change, new structures. Now, he, was, he believed in what's called teleology. He thought history was going someplace. He thought it was getting better and better. The spirit is manifesting itself in better ways over time. Now, of course, that's arguable. People tend not to be teleological these days, but the whole notion that history is evolving and changing and growing, see, that, that's Hegelian. It's underway. It's, it's, it's moving and it's shaping us and theoretically we can shape it. That's totally new. Even Kant, everybody, if you look and read it, everybody's trying to fix things. Platonic eternal forms, right? The eternal forms never change, so all you're trying to do is get in touch with those eternal positions. This, you, know, kings are, you know, King whatever, John the 752nd. You know, it's not changing, it's staying the same. So that continual process of imagining the world as fixed and unchanging... Hegel just blows a hole in it. That's why people are so excited about this. You mean history is dynamic? And he said, not only is history dynamic, the kind of society you live in shapes you, influences how you think, how you behave, how you act. So different people at different times have different life processes. Now this just seems obvious to us. We just go, of course, Obviously, this is so true. No, it was apparently it wasn't true to anybody until Hegel. It's an idea that's coming out of this time period, but Hegel articulates it probably most clearly and certainly at most length. Um, but but this uh, um, this dynamic notion that basically anthropology exists, and he he made made these arguments that said things like, look. To understand what somebody's thinking, you don't need to know just what they're arguing for or arguing against, you need to know why they're arguing it. You need to know what kind of systems they're in. What those systems suggest and reject, and, because otherwise, he says, you just have no clear sense of who they are or what they're talking about. And again, this doesn't sound revelatory to us, it just seems obvious. Except for, it was not obvious to these people. It was new. Hegel basically took all of world history and made it alive, gave it dynamism, gave it activity, change, direction, development. And I mean, people got really excited about the history of everything because it wasn't just a catalog of events or uh, a frozen narrative about, oh, we have the Bible, this is another example. One, if you're if you're doing the Christian theological history, which is you know, 90% of the medieval histories, it was like you took any event in the world and you said, How does this fit into the Bible? Now that's just what do you mean? How does it fit into the how does it fit into a book that was written 2,000 years before the event? What the hell are you talking about? No, that to them, it was like, no, clearly the Bible is the narrative, and everything has to fit into the narrative of the Bible. Not in the sense of prophecy, by the way. It wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, pr- this was prophesied. No. The narrative is fixed. You just need to know where the events of your era occur and fit within that narrative. So where are we in the, like, fleeing from Egypt? What are you talking about, right? For us, we can't even, because it's like, well, but the Bible was written before the events. They can't go back, right? That's, That's that's a Hegelian idea that the events come in a sequence, that they influence each other, that to understand the process of those influences creates new ideas, new opportunities, new kinds of people who look at the world in different ways. Hegel, 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 Hegel. He's the philosopher who really went crazy with this. He says it's a living, dynamic, culturally diverse, historically rich world, which is of course why people were like, we love this idea. Art, for instance, he said, look, art is one of those great places where the individual and the spirit is mediated in whatever the medium is. And he's like, when you have a beautiful work of art, what you're really saying is, for people at a particular time, some manifestation of the individual and the spirit creates something that resonates because it speaks to their collectivity, to, to, to their sort of world and structure. And he said, the problem, though, is when you get all this liberty, is you don't have an agreement anymore. You can't have a unified sense of what's great when you have lots and lots of freed people. You know, it's this very modern idea, right? This is one of the things we struggle with now. Well, that, Hegel worked that out a couple hundred years ago. He's like, look, once you liberate people and reduce the amount of structure keeping them down, they're not going to agree about things. A lot of the agreement in the world is going to go away. And he said, so what will create a sense of community, in part, will be the arguing about what you should be doing. Not imp- you can't impose it on free people, it just pisses them off. You can't have no rules because that's just chaos and anarchy, and people can't think or organize themselves. But what you can have is a whole bunch of debates about how you create meaning and structures. So on one hand, he he just said people aren't going to find this hugely fulfilling, which is of course our problem, right? But it's better than being oppressed in, in various ways. And so he actually recognized that the dynamism of the ongoing debate makes the system. Which is crazy for someone who was born in Stuttgart in the 1700s that it had this hierarchical, legalistic, you know, you know, Holy Roman imperial legal system. No, and then he's like, yeah, no, that's no good. You don't want that fixity. Somehow he embraced like the chaos that we still struggle with today. Little sea chaos. That's a sort of the continual struggle for how do we make meaning? He's like, yeah, yes. Because when you ask yourself, how do you make meaning? Well, you're thinking about how you think. And when you think about how you think, you're being the most human you can possibly be. That is the end of it. But again, back to the spirit thing, which is crucial to keep in mind, is it wasn't... Isolating and didn't make you a monadic in the in the Hegelian system because you really did believe in this universal spirit, just Neoplatonism. I mean, like pure Neoplatonism, that you could access. And on one I always think it sounds a little crazy, but then you think about it. What's the kind of things we say? People say, "Oh, it's it's spiritual." We still use that language. Geist is the German word, by the way, that's being translated as spiritual as geist. So if you've ever heard the word Zeitgeist, right, the spirit of the times. And, and, we, and it's true, certain times, certain places just have a different feel. He says, yeah, that is a manifestation of this universal order that must exist because we have life. And we must be able to access it, Kant. Or, or Hegel argues, opposed to Kant. He says, no, we can't access it. We can access it with our hearts, we can access it with our emotions, and we feel it and we know it when we encounter it. We go, ah, yeah, that moves me. That's powerful. How can it move me? Well, because it's, it has access to this universal force that pervades everything. Um, and so it, it doesn't create this chaos. So, but it is a, a complex thing. And so people complain about the complexity of Hegel, which is fair, but part of the complexity comes from his unwillingness to just oversimplify, to just say, oh, here's a new social order that's going to make everything nice. He's like, no, I don't think there, you can do that. Free people can't do that. Well, all they can do is come up with a whole bunch of competing social concepts which they argue out amongst themselves and you call that order. But again, it's a dynamic order. It's the making of the order that brings us together, essentially. And so what what Hegel left us with, and again, it's, it's, they call him the first modernist philosopher, this, is, a, is a couple of key issues. One, that. You, that you are of infinite worth, that you are this representation of huge potential. Everybody is. Now, we may not realize it, that's different, but we at least have the potential. And that potential should be respected by your political institutions and by everything else. Um, two, that the structures you grow up in have a huge determining effect on how you think, how you act, and who you are. And again, this is new. You are not born with your identity, which is the old system. Your parents were peasants, you are born a peasant, you're a peasant, we know who you are, you're a peasant. I mean, that's a class, 90% of people. That's all you need to know about somebody. Hegel's like, no, the individual is a dynamic thing involved in dynamic processes that shape and grow, and part of that is self-reflective shaping and remaking. And the more you liberate the person to remake themselves, the greater they have the capacity to express their individual, you know, infinite value. And so that's the goal of all political and social structures, is to maximize the opportunity for people to shape themselves. But again, basically you can think of this as the birth of psychology. Because he really just said you have to have this deep understanding, appreciation and attention to human psychology, emotional development and cultural environment. Uh, everything. The, 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 the term of art is sort of Bildung in German. It's, it's, it's this idea that you create these world pictures and, and you educate people into being the best version of themselves. So, by the people, the debates never change, it turns out, uh, or rarely change in history. So, one of the big fights that Hegel was involved in is, is at the university was saying, look, the university should be designed to make the best possible people. To help people be the best possible people they can be, um, not get jobs, and so he, he, yeah, I know he was in continual he was in continual battle with the medical, scientific, on the growing power of science now, right, coming on, and and legal departments, the the law schools who are saying no, no, what are you talking all this philosophy art nonsense. These people need to make jobs, to make money, to work for the state, to make everything work well, and so they can be wealthy, and that's good. And Hegel's like, no, that's absolutely a terrible idea. The idea is to make people and help people become the best possible versions of themselves. It was a self-improvement sort of opportunity that you're trying to give people. And you can't force it on them. It wasn't a, a, a you, you sit there and do this and then you'll be this kind of person because it's totally opposed to that kind of uh, dogmatic training. It was how do we help people liberate their mind so they can make, remake themselves themselves? He thought that was the goal of the university. Um, and so that tradition, that struggle is still here today, right? I mean, we have this problem today, why do people go to school? Oh, to get a job. Right? This, is, this is always the answer. It's financial benefits. But then they say, oh, then why do we make them take whatever some sort of history class? Well, we want them to be good citizens. Uh, rarely do we say, wow, we just want them to be the best possible version of themselves they can be. Because that just sounds sort of not very something. I don't know what. It sounds like a waste of taxpayer money, right? Uh, right? That somehow having people improve themselves is not a good use of taxpayer money. Um, you know, so but that it's, it's an ongoing debate, but the debate was back then as well. Once they shifted out of, oh, the purpose of an education is so you can become either a seminarian or a lawyer who works for the powers that be, then you go, well, what is the purpose of an education? Why, why do we have these institutions of higher education? What are they doing? So again, another debate that Hegel was deeply involved with, that's still going on today, and it shows no sign of stopping. And so often when people complain about this, it's it's good to remember, yeah, we've been complaining about this argument several hundred years old. So don't expect it to be resolved anytime soon, by the way, Um, and and it just probably keeps going. So he created the huge interest in human psychology. He reconceptualized the understanding of art. Once you have the Hegelian idea of art, by the way, which is our idea, um, art from any place in the world at any time can become great. During the Renaissance tradition, you looked at the classic from the past, and you said, that is great art. The ability of us to approach that is the greatness of our art. So this is why the Gothic art was failed classicism. the the Gothic artists' cathedrals, they were trying to make Roman and Greek architecture and sculptures. They just weren't very good at it. So they were failed classical artists. Because we know what good art is, it's fixed. It's one thing, and it doesn't change. It's universal. Hegel comes along and says, no, 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 no. At any time... Art can be great because it can match the spirit of the times. It can bring something new into the world by new cultures and new societies and new ideas that expresses the interest and abilities of new kinds of people. And so that's why our museums are filled with art from all kinds of different time periods and all, all over the world. Because we can go, oh yeah, a 14th century jade piece from South America is amazing and beautiful, it can be real. It's not, they weren't like messing up trying to copy Greek stuff, right? The Aztecs didn't sort of blow it like we were trying to do a, a Roman uh, Colosseum and we ended up with sort of a step pyramid. Um, you know, that there wasn't, it wasn't that sort of thing. It's like, no, that was amazing work that expressed them. Again, this just seems dead obvious to us but probably the most popular lecture series he gave, and he was a very popular lecture, was on the history and of, of philosophy of art because of this. Because it told people, hey, by the way, the entire world history of art is yours and it's valuable. Go explore it. It all could be meaningful and great and wonderful. Take a look at it. There is a way... Of understanding that will open up its greatness to you. And again, we just say this for granted, it's like, oh of course, but historically this is not, of course is not accurate. Historically people are like, oh no, that's, this is good art, that's bad art, those people over there didn't know what they were doing, these people did, but again it's the same problem. So now what we have is an unending and insoluble debate about what makes good art. <laughs> That's, you launch the modern problem every single time. And the modern problem is, once you stop saying, this is good art, ipso facto, everything else is bad art, how do you deal with the multiplicity? How do you not just end up with chaos? So well, when you think about Hegel, and, you, and if you've heard about Hegel, by, by the way, synthesis, antithesis, the, the, Hegel never said that. It's one of those interesting things. It's probably from Faurabach. Uh, he implies something like this, but really it's much more complicated for that. He wasn't just saying you get this happens and then that's a response to that and then those two things fuse and produce something new. No, he's like history is this dynamic, ongoing, growing, complex, subtle, amazing process. He, he, he gave it life. He revivified it. Um, so when you think about Hegel... Uh, and if you try to read Hegel, good on you. I mean, I think he does reward reading, but it's just really slow. It's just like the quotes that we read. Um, but keep this in mind that he did bring all these ideas and concepts that we take for granted um, as just being the way things are. Of course art is great. Of course history is alive. Of course the psychology of individuals matter. Of course people have value. But it's it, it, important to remember that this is not a given. was not historically standard. It's something that we've inherited, and we've inherited in large part, uh, a lot of that, from Hegel. He didn't invent all of it, but he was the great spokesman, the great promoter, Uh, and his influence then is so great, by the way, and I can't remember his name, there's a French philosopher of the 20th century who said, um, the problem with doing philosophical research and arguments today is no matter what path you go down, when you get to the end of it, you find Hegel there smiling at you, (laughs) right? And there's this, it is really truth because he's difficult and subtle and complex and wrote lots and lots of long stuff and then his students published lots of his lectures. So we have all of that as well. Um, But at the end of it, he created this response that didn't say, oh, crown myself emperor. He said, no, 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 look to a new future, to the world we inhabit, where you do have complexity and chaos and challenge, but you have human liberty and opportunity and dynamism. Uh, And so imagine a living, powerful world of, of, of conflict and ideas, and sort of that's the Hegelian world that we've inherited. So thank you very much, Hegel.